Hey, church. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Thanks for being here. It's good to worship the Lord together. Thanks especially to the whole team that makes that possible, whether it's the band or the folks in the booth or everybody that chips into that. What a blessing. Um, Last week, we introduced this sort of new little tiny two-week sermon series on worship called Extreme Worship. And um, we did that by looking at this picture in the Old Testament of this guy named David, who you've probably heard of, who was the king of Israel, but he was young and he was new and he was not really very established in that role. And then we looked at this passage where they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem for the first time in years. And it's this incredible moment of worship. And we see that David, in the midst of that worship, throws off his crown, takes off his royal robes and is dancing at the front of the parade. And uh, we saw that his worship was like over the top, extreme, extravagant, wild and crazy, dance like nobody's watching kind of worship, right? And we also saw that his wife was embarrassed by the behavior of her husband, which is the only time in history that's ever happened. (laughs) (laughs) And David's worship was so over the top in that moment, it was so extreme, if you will, that even he described his behavior as undignified. So in other words, whatever dignity that was perceived in David because he was the king, because he had the crown, because he had the purple robe and all that kind of stuff, he throws all of that off and he's like, I don't care who else sees me. I don't care what they think of me. What I am doing is performing for an audience of one and I'm going to praise him and I'm going to worship him and I'm going to sing and I'm gonna shout and I'm gonna dance and I'm gonna do whatever else the spirit moves me to do because I'm going to worship him with all of my heart. And as we looked at that and we saw that example, it occurred to me and hopefully to some of you that some of us have probably become too comfortable with the idea of being in the presence of a holy God. That, that we have sort of just accepted this wonderful news that Jesus uh, became flesh and dwelt on the earth and paid the price for our sins and hung on the cross and rose again so that he could become the friend of sinners and we as sinners become his friend and somehow we gotta find that balance between Jesus my buddy and Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords and it's easy for us if we sort of have eased into the sense that me and Jesus are pals that when we come to worship him sometimes we lose sight of just who it is that we're in the presence of and we maybe become just a little too comfortable in that context. So today, I want us to kind of flip the page, and I want us to consider another example of a person who is trying to figure out the worship thing, and uh, she is an example of the opposite situation. She gets into the presence of God, and she becomes incredibly uncomfortable in the presence of God. Now, her story is in John chapter four, so if you have a Bible, you're gonna wanna turn to the Gospel of John, which is in your New Testament, right between Luke and Acts. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, and we're gonna be looking at her story just briefly this morning in John chapter four, 
And it's a story with which many of you are already familiar. So instead of reading you this whole story, let me just summarize to get you back up to speed and understanding what it is we're talking about. But um, as you're turning there, I'm going to summarize. Jesus is on his way from Judea, which is where Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel. He's on his way from Judea to Galilee, which is his hometown where he's from and where a lot of his ministry takes place. Now, if you've, if you've ever seen a, a map of Israel, it's kind of a long, thin land, right? You have Judea down here at the bottom, and then you have Galilee up here near the top by the uh, Sea of Galilee, and in between you have an area called Samaria. And we've talked about this many times, but uh, if you're going to travel, which people did all the time from Galilee to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Galilee, the problem was Samaria is right in the middle. And Jewish culture at that time taught that Samaritans were filthy, that you were to have nothing to do with Samaritans. Samaritans were the bad guys. Samaritans were the hated race. Samaritans were the neighborhood that you were never to go into. Literally, they said that even if the dust of Samaria was to get on your feet, you would be ceremonially unclean and unable to worship in the temple until you went through a cleansing ritual. That's how they thought of Samaria. That's how they thought of Samaritans. So that obviously presents a problem because the most direct route between Galilee and Jerusalem is through the middle of Samaria. And so any good Jewish person, if they had to make that trip, would spend the extra miles and extra hours to go around on one side or the other and miss Samaria altogether. But I've always been fascinated by the verse in John chapter 4 that says Jesus was going to go from Jerusalem or Judea to Galilee and he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. So while everybody else would go around, he felt he had to go through Samaria. And we're going to find out in a minute what was going to happen in Samaria that meant he had to go through Samaria. But he's going through now. It's about 75 miles from Jerusalem to Galilee. So if you're walking that, now it depends who you are, I suppose. But if you're walking that, if I'm walking that, I die a third of the way in. That's so... But, but if you're walking that at a normal adult pace, it's going to take you about three days of walking all day to get there. So, so we look at the scripture and we go, oh, they always seem to be going back and forth from the north to the south, over and over. And they did. But they just traveled. They just walked. And they, they were in much better shape than we are. So about 75 miles, so if you're having a hard time picturing that, if you were to leave Duarte and go to the city of Ventura today, that's about 75 miles. So that gives you an idea. And they, they had to walk it. So, so if, you, if you're going to walk 8, 9, 10 hours a day, that's going to be a three-day journey. So you're going to need a couple of places to camp along the way. And so um, he's passing through Samaria, and he comes to this place called Jacob's Well, where Jacob had dug a well. And he sent his disciples into town to buy food because apparently they're going to camp there in that area. Now, that's a strange thing for Jewish men to do. It's strange enough that they went through Samaria, but to stay there, to like eat the food that was prepared by those filthy people, to do any of that was just a kind of an absurd idea that none of them would have been used to. But Jesus goes, no, we're going to stay here, so I need you guys to go into town. There's a, you know, smart and final in 
in town. I want you to pick up some stuff or go to Costco and get 87 pallets of whatever it is we need. And he sends them in. And while they're gone, he stays there by Jacob's well, resting. And while he's there by Jacob's well, along comes this woman. And most of us know her story. She comes in the heat of the afternoon, which is not the time of day that women come to draw water. Always, in all of these villages, they would have often these shared wells. Don't picture indoor plumbing or any of that. This is a long time before that. So you have to go to the well with your pots of water, and this was just standard work that women in the village would gather together, and they would walk out together in the early part of the day when it's cool, and they would fill their pots with water and bring those pots home, and that would be the water for their family for the day. That's just the way it was done. But that's not the way she did it. She came in the heat of the afternoon, when the sun was at the top of the sky. And we, we're not told in scripture why, but the more we learn about her, the easier it is to figure out why. She doesn't want to come with a group of women from the village because she's got a lot to be ashamed of. She's embarrassed. The gossip just goes on and on about her and she knows it. And so she comes instead in the middle of the day and she's coming because no one's at the well that time of day. And so she is shocked to find anyone at the well, let alone a Jewish rabbi. This is the last person you would ever expect to see there. And yet she shows up and there's Jesus, this Jewish rabbi. She didn't expect him to be there. And she certainly did not expect him to speak with her. In fact, when he basically says, hey, how's it going? Could you help me get a drink of water? She's like, why are you talking to me? I can't believe you're talking to me. She's freaked out by the whole thing. And Jesus asks her for some water. And that leads to a conversation. That's all there in John chapter 4. Before long in this conversation, Jesus has told her all about her life, including all of her shameful secrets. And that's where we're going to pick it up in John chapter 4, verse 19. She is, Jesus has just said, I know that you've been married to five different men, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Now, even in our culture today, in our society, a lot of people would feel they're being looked down upon because they've had five different marriages and people might be judging them and all of that kind of stuff. But you can't even compare that to what that must have been like for a woman in this culture and that society. She was seen as a tramp. Simple as that. And so he tells her all of this about her, and that's where she makes this brilliant statement. It's in chapter 4, verse 19. Listen, he's just told her all of this. Verse 18, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is a bright lady. She goes, you've just told me all the secrets of my life, things you couldn't possibly know. You and I have never met. You just show up here by the well and you talk to me and you tell me all of my dirty laundry of my life, all the stuff that I don't talk to people about, that I don't want people to know. You've just told me all this stuff. And so my perception is, she says, that you must be a prophet. And suddenly she gets really uncomfortable. And I can understand that. Have you, ever, have you ever been in someone's presence and suddenly become really uncomfortable? Um, 
I was talking to some of the guys at the retreat about this this weekend, and it popped into my head. Um, I like to play golf, and if you it, golf, for those of you who don't play, is usually played in groups of four or, or foursomes. And so uh, if you show up and there's just two of you, they'll stick you with two other guys and make a group of four and off you go. Or if you show up by yourself, they'll put you with three others, that sort of thing. And so if you go without four people, you're going to meet someone new. And for me, it's very common. I'm there maybe with one or two of my friends and they put one or two other guys in our group. And if you've never been around a golf course, let me just tell you that the language on a golf course is not like the language at church. And uh, if you are easily offended by words that have four letters, you are going to be in trouble on a golf course because everybody's a terrible golfer, and when you hit a bad shot, you're required by law to shout a four-letter word. <laughs> and so that's what happens on golf courses, and you get these guys, they're just talking, and they're cussing, and they're complaining, and they're making rude comments, and they're doing all that kind of stuff because it's just guys. And around the fourth or fifth hole... It always comes around to the point where you're standing there and one of these guys you just met, he will look to me and go, so, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and my, my answer is, oh, I'm a pastor. And that is always followed by another four-letter word. <laughs> oh, you should have told me that already. I, and, and it's always funny for me, and I always laugh, and I always tell them, listen, I, I said I'm a pastor. I didn't say I was Jesus. Settle down. It's going to be okay, you know. But, but I watch these guys go from really comfortable to really uncomfortable all of a sudden. And, and I just thought of that when I thought about this lady. She, she's just like, this is uncomfortable enough. I'm speaking to this stranger. He's a male. Men don't just walk up to women in public in this culture and talk to them. He's a Jew. He's a rabbi. And then he tells me all my secrets. She gets really, really, really uncomfortable. So she does what you and I do when God starts to talk to us about the stuff that we don't want to talk to him about. She changes the subject. And uh, she says, hey, let's don't talk about my five husbands. Let's don't talk about my current living situation. Why don't we talk about religion? And he's like, I kind of like talking about religion. Let's do that. So in chapter 4, verse 20, this is where we're going to pick it up. She says this to Jesus, our fathers, meaning the, the Samaritans, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say, do you see the animosity? There's the us and the you, right? She, she, she's referring to the Jews as you people. And, and believe me, she's used to the Jews referring to her that way. So she says, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. 
Now, to really get a grasp of what's happening here, you need to understand a little bit about the difference between uh, worship traditions for Samaritans and worship traditions for Jews at this time. Because for the Samaritans, they, they believe in the God of the Bible. It's just that they only think the first five books, the books of Moses, are actual scripture. And so they just use the Pentateuch or the first five books. And so all that they know about God and his interaction with people and his communication to people is what they see, what the patriarchs, right? It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and how God interacted with those guys. And so what they understand about worship is that there are certain holy places that are consecrated as places of worship. There are these places where Abraham built altars. There's this place where uh, Jacob dug a well. There's this mountain where God met with the people and these are the holy places and these are the places that we worship. And the way we worship is through sacrifices. So that's the entire Samaritan view of worship. And the Jews come along and go, oh, no, 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 no. Um, After those five books, there was a temple built. And now we worship in the temple. The temple is the holy place. And and there are certain rituals that are related to the temple, certain ordinances. There are priests who were there, and they have to carry these things out. There are certain traditions, certain ceremonies that we do when we're at the temple, and we make these pilgrimages to the temple so we can have these special times of worship. It's very different than the Samaritan view. But here's the problem with both of those views. They're both too focused on external things. And Jesus is about to make a point here, and the point is this. True worship has always been a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of places. It's not a matter of uh, traditions. It's a matter of the heart. It's about a personal relationship with God, and worship involves our whole lives. The Samaritan woman had known about God. But how many know there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, right? Big difference. And, and, um, you know, when I was a kid, I I knew about God. I'd been to Sunday school a few times. I I knew about Christmas and I knew about Easter and I, and, and I, you could say I believed in God. And in one sense, that was absolutely true. I knew about him but I certainly didn't know him. It wasn't until I was 14 and someone introduced me into a personal relationship with Jesus where I knew him as my Lord and Savior and that transformed my life and my life's never been the same since then. That's about knowing him. And there's a big difference between knowing about him and knowing him. It's about a personal encounter with Jesus and that changes our lives. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. So... When, when I met Jesus personally, I began to worship. Before that point, I might have sang a song in Sunday school or might have heard a story and thought this is good or I might have learned some rules about, you know, uh, don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal and don't use the Lord's name in vain and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't know him. And your life gets transformed when you know him because once you know Jesus on a personal level, then you can worship in spirit and truth. 
And that's not about a specific worship service on a specific day of the week in a specific hour with specific traditions and songs and all of that kind of stuff. It's about a whole lot more than that. True worship that's in spirit and truth happens every place all the time for people who have a personal relationship with Jesus. I want to show you what I mean. Um, in our next sermon series, we're going to be into the book of Romans, and so I'm not going to say too much about that today, but I, I do want to say this. Um, in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters of Romans are all about a presentation of the gospel from a theological and doctrinal point of view. So you can see on, this, on the screen behind me, Romans 1 through 11. So I'm going to read you Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11 right now. I will not do that. Um, but let me summarize. Let me sum up. Here's how this works. Um, in Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul makes the argument that God created all things and created man to have a relationship with him, but because of man making the choice to sin and make himself his own God rather than worshiping the one true God, man is now broken and fallen and all of mankind is now stained with sin. He makes the argument that we sin not just because we've inherited a sin nature from our forefathers, but that we sin because we like to sin. We choose to sin. We want to be our own gods. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And Paul makes this argument. And he says this is bad news because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life because Jesus has paid the price for our sin. And so he says that while we were yet enemies with God, he sent his own son to die for us so that we could be reconciled to God. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, whether we're men or women, whether we're slaves or free, whoever we are, we can be reconciled to God despite our sinfulness because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross. Now, I just got you through Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. Now, we're going to be doing Romans in the men's Bible study, and we're going to be doing Romans on Sunday mornings, and I promise you'll get some more detail. But for now, that's what you need to know. Those first 11 chapters of Romans just wrap up the gospel. And when we get to the end of Romans chapter 11, and that's where I want you to join me in your scripture, go to Romans chapter 11 in the Bible. If you're in, uh, in where did I have you in John? Go to Acts, and Romans is right after that. So Romans chapter 11, and I'm gonna meet you at the end of the chapter because Paul has just spent 11 chapters outlining what I just summarized for you, and then he says this in response to all that he has just said about how good and gracious and kind God is to set us free from sin. Verse 33, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be given back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
So he gets to the end of this long dissertation about sin and the problem of sin and the grace of God, and he says, in light of that grace, I just want to praise God who is worthy of our praise forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Okay. So that gets us to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, now what do I always tell you about the word therefore in the Bible? When you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask, what is it? What's it there for? What is therefore referring back to? And so when you see therefore, especially at the beginning of a chapter, beginning of a section, you're always going to go, oh, what's he referring to? When he says therefore here, he's referring to those verses that I just read you specifically. Because God is so good, because God is so worthy, and he's also referring to all that has been said about the gospel. So it refers to these direct verses, and it also refers to those whole 11 chapters. Because God has been so kind and merciful and gracious to us us. Therefore, because he saw us dead in our trespasses and sins and decided to send a savior rather than an executioner, therefore, because we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus, therefore, because we have new life in him, therefore, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Therefore, because God has done all of this for us, therefore, what should be our response? According to Paul, our response should be that we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now, we're gonna break down this verse just a little bit in the next few minutes, and I, and I want to talk first before we get into what does it mean to be a living sacrifice. I wanna point out the strange wording of this verse. He doesn't say what I would expect him to say. What I would expect him to say is, therefore, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. But that's not what he says. He specifically says, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I find that to be strange. What does he need with my body? Has he seen my body? I don't think he's impressed. What does he need with my body? Why is God asking me to present my body to him? Now again, we gotta get inside the minds of these Jewish and Samaritan worshipers. Everything they've understood about how you connect with God is that it's done through taking an animal, killing the animal, and presenting the body of the animal to God as a sacrifice. But there's a big difference. When you kill an animal and present an animal on the altar as a sacrifice, it has a tendency to stay there until someone moves it. Why? It's dead. But he says to us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so when he emphasizes our bodies, he's getting past this wrong kind of thinking that was very prevalent in this day and age and is still prevalent in our day and age, which is to say that your body is just sort of the shell in which you live, but it's really not that important. Your body is sort of separate from who you are. But that is not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that you are mind, soul, spirit, and body. 
and that your body is part of who you are. And there's huge implications for that theologically and practically. But I, without getting into all of that for today, what I wanna say is he's talking about the practical side of life on earth. He's not talking about a theoretical decision that says, you know what, Lord, I belong to you and so I'm gonna worship you and I'll see you in heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying you're living on earth and you are living in a body. Everything is practical, everything is real, everything is physical. This body that you have is part of who you are and you're to present yourself practically to God, which helps us understand why we have to be a living sacrifice and not a dead sacrifice, right? So he says, present your bodies, not yourselves. It's intensely practical. God calls those of us who worship him in spirit and truth not to bring a dead sacrifice, but to be a living sacrifice. He's actually talking about when you go to work on Monday mornings. He's talking about the way you treat your spouse, your children, or your parents. He's talking about what you do with your finances. He's talking about your sexuality. He's talking about um, physical violence. He's talking about all these practical things that we go, oh, that's really separate from spiritual stuff. And he's saying it's not separate. I'm asking you as your spiritual service of worship to present your practical life to me. That's different. That's extreme. That's asking a lot. Galatians 2.20 says, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So it's really about me belonging to him. Scripture says, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Practically, He's talking about here on earth. He's not talking about pie in the sky and the great by and by. He's talking about today, tomorrow, and Saturday. How are we going to live? Are we going to live as living sacrifices? Or are we going to live as if we're our own God? I know this is obvious. goes without saying. But God doesn't need bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves. He wants our complete love and devotion. That's what extreme worship is about. God didn't, take, take, take Abraham, right? Abraham's like walking with God. Finally, you know the long story. Finally, he's a bazillion years old and he gets his son, this promised son. He's the sign of God's faithfulness, his son Isaac. And Isaac is everything to him. He's everything to him. It's all of his hopes and dreams and everything is in Isaac. He loves Isaac with all of his heart. And God goes, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to go up there on that mountain and I want you to kill your son as a sacrifice to me. Now, you would have to have not read any other pages of Scripture to think that's a godly thing to do, right? And yet God asks him to do it. Of course, we know the story. God stops him and doesn't allow him to kill his son. But why would he do that? Did he want Abraham's son dead? No. He understood where Abraham's heart was, and he wanted Abraham's complete devotion and love in his whole heart. And so this idea of practical worship is a different kind of a deal. When a person is a living sacrifice, everything belongs to God and everything exists for God's glory. 
in Luke 14, Jesus talks about um, how if we're really going to follow him, like, this is crazy. It's a big crowd, and Jesus starts talking about this stuff, and by the time he's done, like, everybody's left. They're like, we can't put up with this. This is insane. This guy's nuts. What did he say that was so offensive? He said, if you want to come after me, you have to be willing to leave your father, your mother, your wife, your sister, your children. You have to be, able to be willing to leave everyone and come after me and follow me. Now again, how are we to interpret that? Did Jesus mean to say that we are not supposed to love our families? Obviously not. You'd have to ignore the rest of scripture to believe that. The Bible says over and over and over again that we're to love our families, right? And that we're to be devoted to these people and we're to be committed and serve them and all of those kinds of things. It's taught to us over and over and over from Genesis to Revelation. So obviously that is not what Jesus means. What does he mean? He means that if you're really going to come after me, it's not a halfway proposal, If you're really going to be my worshiper, your love and devotion to me has to be so strong that even the love and devotion you have for your own family pales in comparison. It's kind of shocking. And the crowd left when he said that. But it's the truth. If we're going to worship God, he is not interested in part-time, halfway sort of worship. He actually expects us to be a living sacrifice. Worship in spirit and truth is intensely practical. It doesn't just mean coming to church and singing the songs on Sundays. It means clinging to God instead of clinging to the things that you thought were so valuable before you knew God. I was thinking about this when when, when, uh, my eldest daughter, Lisa, uh, when she was a baby, we gave her, I think she was six months old, we, we gave her this really cute little stuffed mouse. It was Christmas time. So the mouse was holding a, a candy cane, I mean a, a stuffed candy cane, and um, this cute little white mouse, and uh, we named the mouse Puff, and she loved the mouse. You couldn't get it away from her. We finally did what a lot of you parents have done in a similar situation. We bought a counterfeit puff so we could get the one away from her and wash it once in a while, right? Because it started out white, but by the time we, she had had it for a little while, it was black. It was like, what are we going to do? She, she screams, you take this thing away from her. She clings to this thing. You need her to shut up and be quiet and sleep in the car? Give her a puff, right? Simple, easy. Parenting 101, Right? That's what we did with her, and she would cling to that thing. But you know what happened? She grew up. She doesn't have it anymore. Now she clings to something different. That is what so many of us have a hard time with. We have a hard time letting go of those things that used to identify us, those things that used to comfort us, those things that used to give us hope and used to make us feel better and that we would put our trust in. We have a hard time giving up those things, and those things could be anything. could be money. It could be a relationship. It could be your career, your title, the respect of other people, your hopes and dreams, all that kind of stuff. We have a hard time with this because this is the problem, you guys, with the living sacrifice. They keep crawling off the altar. 
The sacrifice is alive. It's gonna crawl off the altar. Can anybody say amen to that? Right? I've crawled off the altar so many times. Oh Lord, I'm all yours. Tears and the whole thing. I'm yours, God, from this day forward. Nothing. And then all of a sudden I'm aware that God wants something to change in my life that I don't want to change. And I'm like, you know what, Lord? I'll be back later. I'm gonna just go do this. We tend to crawl off the altar. But oh, you guys... Jesus is looking, according to John chapter 4, for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. Wholehearted worship. It doesn't have to be extravagant outward worship like it is with David. It, it, it could be quiet and, and um, thoughtful and prayerful worship. There's all kinds of ways to worship, but guys, we've got to stop thinking about worship as something we do for a while and then stop doing it, and we've got to think about worship as what it is to belong to God, that we let go of those trivial things that we've been holding on to so we can hold on to Jesus. We belong to him. And so let me just ask you to think about something in your life. What's coming between you and the Lord? It's worth thinking about. You might want to spend some time praying about that question this week. Lord, reveal to me what, what is there that I'm holding on to when I should be holding on to you? What am I, what am I in, in just my practical life, what am I unwilling to let go of in order to follow you? What areas am I not giving myself to you? It's a really worthwhile question to ponder with the Lord because you guys, isn't it time to let go of that stuff and become a living sacrifice? One of the things we have to remember about God is he doesn't ask us to do things like this so he can make our life smaller, so he can control us, so he can crush us, so he can keep us under his thumb, so he can make sure we don't have any fun. When God asks something of us, it's so we can be released from bondage. It's so we can be opened up to experience life the way he he designed it for us. It's so we can experience life abundantly and to the fullest. And so when he says to us, hey guys, it's time for you to let go of some stuff. It's time for you to be an extreme worshiper. It's time for you to be somebody who actually worships me in the way you do your business. Somebody who worships me in the way you raise your children. Somebody who worships me in the way you handle your finances. Somebody who worships me in the way you treat your spouse. Day by day, not just Sundays, Monday through Saturday, a living sacrifice. That, my friends, that is your spiritual service of worship.